What is this great conversation you're about to hear? Hello everyone, this is W, host of the High Art on the Edge page. I'm an online event planner that supports artists' work from all over the world. They create the product. I help organize and execute a memorable event on social media for their fans, family members, and friends. What do Kevin Rowland, Babylon Zoo, and Slade all have in common? They come from the great place of Wolverhampton, England. Let's not forget about the post-punk alternative band, The Mighty Lemon Drops. Remember their smash 1988 hit tune, Inside Out? Well, they are that type of band that so many people admire for their brightly lit melodies and intense jingle-jangle guitar pop. My best friend Dave Vongier and I dip our feet into their infectious pool of songs that connect directly to the big, essential question. Why does the Mighty Lemon Drops music sound so crystal clear? Grab yourself a drink, have a seat, sit back, and enjoy our discussion on this magnificent band that deserve far more critical acclaim and public awareness. Hopefully, at the end of our talk, you'll be inspired to listen to more of their music and feel its resin aural shine. Yeah. What is that sound? Must be the mighty lemon drops. Hello, everyone. This is W, host of the High Art on the Edge page. That is right. October 7th, Saturday, beautiful day here in the Bay Area. Let's get started in this very special surprise event, number 13. This surprise event will shine a light on a band that uh, my best friend Dave here um, and I have really appreciated their sound uh, for many, many years. And what we're going to do is we're going to take a deeper dive into their work and kind of explore this big essential question that I will share with you in a little bit. Um, but uh, yeah, so let me bring in my best friend, Dave, who I've actually known since kindergarten. We've grown up with many um, concert experiences, music experiences, uh, friendship stuff. But uh, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, the band that both he and I completely agree upon in terms of their sound and influence. So Dave Von Gear, how are you? Great, William. How are you? I'm doing quite well. Thank you for being here and participating in, uh, hopefully you'll do some more later in the future. Maybe if we do some Midnight Oil or Depeche Mode. Hey, I'm, I'm up for anything. It's just if you're you're such a big star now, it's just a question <laughs> if you're going to have me on or not. Um, so always, happy, always happy to talk some Lemon Drops because I think you and I agree, not only influential, great band, but one of the all-time underrated bands. That's a great. I really, I really strongly, strongly feel. I would agree with that, and um, you know, let's let's not go all the way back to kindergarten with our friendship. But I want to ask you this question: Where did it all begin for you in terms of you kind of um, getting infected by their sound? Well, as, as you know, we both grew up loving the same music, whatever you want to call it, alternative, modern rock, and. I think by the mid eighties, I was kind of squarely in the Depeche Mode cure bandwagon. It was my two favorite bands and great 
Bay Area radio station, Live 105, that we both both cherish. And I just remember them talking about some new song they had. And um, I was not aware of that, the Happy Head era at that point. But they played a song called Inside Out. And I'm just like, wow, that's just like the most perfectly catchy song. Definitely, I'd still identify it as alternative or modern rock, but just so clean, so catchy, just great flow to it. And I was hooked at that point. I'm like, what? Let me find World Without End. And then, oh, they have something earlier. Yeah, let me devour that. And then it just, it just grew from there. So you mentioned catchy. Um, what else resonates with you in terms of their sound? To me, Money Lemon Drops just have this very clean sound. And what I'm, what I mean by that is, I feel like it's it's never showy. I never feel like any one member of the band is sort of overshadowing the other members or dominating the other members. Like if you have a rock and roll band with a really flashy lead guitarist or something like that. Um, I just feel like the band, even though they change band members at some point and they change bassists in, the, in sort of the middle of their run, just always had this sort of tight, cohesive sound, which is like, it's all about the overall sound of the, of the music and the tightness of the band. It's not about one person. It's about this cohesive unit. We're just going to put out these great little three and four minute post-punk songs, whatever era, whatever label you want to put on it. And we're just going to do it. We're just going to do it our way. And it's, um, and there's just a consistency to them that I, I really, admire they they experiment a little bit with other sounds especially later on when they when they got a little bigger a little more produced but for the most part it is you can tell every song it, it is drum and bass and dave newton's guitar and some catchy vocals by paul marsh and that's about all there is to it and to me that's all you need you don't need more than that did you ever get to experience a lemon drops concert you know, for the, I feel like hundreds of concerts you and I went together. <laughs> and I know you've seen them a ton of time. I never saw them. And I don't know, maybe you were inviting your cool friends to those concerts and uh, kicked me to the curb. I don't know, but never saw them, um, which I regret because they broke. It's one of those bands, classic, took them for granted, thought they'd be around for a while, catch them at some point, and then boom, they just broke up with apparently no hope of getting back together one of those Smith types arrangements, you know? And I was just like, oh man, uh, I feel very fortunate to have seen just about every band that I've loved live often multiple times. And that's one I look back on. I'm like, oh man, I had opportunities and didn't do it, took it for granted, said, oh, I'll catch them later on. And then boom, they were gone. And so I do, I do regret. I never saw them live. We will get back to our conversation uh, with that more particular focus here in a little bit. But I want you to tell the audience a little bit about your experience with music. Like, uh, I know you had mentioned Live 105 and you and I sharing that interest there, but um, who kind of inspired you to get into music? That's a good question. I think music for me was a, was a coping mechanism for... Uh, you know, for getting an outlet for me, if you will, for, for getting through a tough time. As you know, my parents got divorced when I was six or seven. Um, they both loved music, but very different. My dad was into classical and opera. My mom was into Neil Diamond and 
Barry Manilow and seventies easy listening stuff that I do not care for. Um, show tunes. Um, but music was always a constant. I may not have loved it, but music was, was a constant, something that was expected to be on during dinner or the backdrop of family conversations in cars or at home. And so I, I just think I got used to having the, the radio on. And then I discovered, you know, Casey Kasem, Top 40. And then when that became, you know, in the early 80s, um, and then when that became a little bland or boring, I'm like, oh, okay, what's this alternative stuff? What's this, what's this new wave stuff coming out primarily of, of, of Britain or bands like the Cars or Blondie or Talking Heads from the U.S.? And I was like, okay. I think I relate to this a little bit. It's still fundamentally pretty, pretty poppy and catchy, but it's just a little different. It's a little more experimental. It's a little more out there. And I really, uh, really gravitated towards that. And it just became constant that music's just always on, whether it's even today when I'm doing work, it's always on. It's when I'm working out, it's, it's just always been a constant and uh, just just always loved it and you just can't beat the the energy of a, of a live show and seeing a band you love especially if they're in peak form and just sort of that that rush or that high that it that it gives you is as you and i have experienced many times in our concert going days so besides the mighty lemon drops who are some other uh bands that have an impact on your life so many. Uh, I mean, the first two I mentioned, I feel so lucky here in 2023 that I saw The Cure in June. I'm going to see Depeche Mode. They're coming to Seattle. Beautiful day in Seattle, by the way. You don't get to say that often in October. It's going to be like 75 degrees today. Uh, going to see Depeche Mode in November. You know, th those were the big two for me that were sort of the big bridge, I guess, over to the the alternative world or modern rock or, or new way of whatever you want to, to call it. So those those are the two where just loved them from for the most part with a few hiccups there here and there from start to finish know all the albums uh so excited to see them live seen them multiple times live and then a little bit on the you know dancier popular side uh always loved erasure new order um a couple bands that you helped me get into a little bit down the road uh were bands like echo and the bunnymen for example, I mean, I knew they're, they're big songs, but I'd never taken really a deep dive into your like, poof, how do you not own Ocean Rain? Or how do you not know The Cutter? Sure, everybody knows Lips Like Sugar, but take a deeper dive. You know, when, when you get a text from William or an email, say, hey, DVG, you like these bands, check out, check out these bands, check out The Chameleons, um, check out I'm trying to think, uh, you know, more recent Lord Huron, you recommended it. I mean, phenomenal. So, uh, some of those bands are a little more under the surface. Took me a little, little longer to, to get into, but, um, so yeah, I'd say sorry with, with, with Cure and Depeche Mode and then, um, sort of evolved over time to more modern bands like the Killers or a band that definitely inspired. I mean, they're named after a New Order video. Um, <laughs> they're deeply influenced by that that music that we loved growing up, and uh, bands like that, or Lord Huron, or a band of forces. I just constantly evolve and, and love them as well. All right, thank you for sharing um, those examples with us. So, what we're going to do now is we're going to focus on this big essential question: What makes the mighty Lemon Drop sound so crystal clear? 
and we're going to share, um, starting with Happy Head, songs that really illustrate that from our opinions. And um, we're going to start with you, Dave, as you being our special guest here. So let's go to Happy Head, released in 1986. I'm going to give you some context. What was released? What other albums came out that year? Of course, I have to start with Licensed Ill. <laughs> uh, Billy Bragg's talking with the tax man about poetry. And then Depeche Mode's Black Celebration. So we, and of course, many more. So we had some big heavy hitters that year. And then we get Happy Head, uh, My Lemon Drops, um, produced by Stephen, Stephen Street, a well-known producer who's worked with a ton of bands. All right, so let's start with you. What are the two or three tracks from that album that really connect to that big essential question? You know, one that, um, upon re-listening, really stood out to me was my biggest thrill. Um, it's not one, when, when I looked at the tracks before I started listening to it, it wasn't one that immediately jumped out to as one of my favorites or one that really stood out to me. but. I listened to that and I'm just like, wow, sort of quintessential jangly guitar at the beginning and then way that works so well with the rhythm section, the, the, the bass and drum of, of that song. Um, I was just like, wow, that one really stood out to me. I'm just like, that is, we talk about sort of their, their clean or clear sound. That one, and, and just vocally to sound a little more confident to me as well. Um, especially when you get to the, the chorus um, of that one. So, yeah, that was one I was surprised looking back at. I'm like, I'm going to make a note of that one. That one really stood out to me on, on re-listening. Any others? Uh, the other one that um, really stood out to me, at least in terms of a, of a particular instrument shining a bit, I know I just talked about how they're such a cohesive unit, but um, listening to Like an Angel, which I know was their... Their, their first single, I believe. Um, just the, the drums in that song, I just heard that. I was just instantly fired up when that big drum sort of intro comes on. Um, and uh, I was like, okay, this, this is this band announcing themselves to the world. Like, hey, um, you know, we, we have this, this particular sound. And on, th on this song, we're going to have this really strong lead in to get your, get your attention. And then leading to, uh, very, very catchy song, I thought. Those are great sterling examples of um, those crystal clear moments. Let's take a listen to Like an Angel for a bit here. Yeah, punchy. Promises. Mm -hmm. Grab your attention and don't don't let go. And that bass, that rhythm section, so good. So, for me and the Happy Head, the um, that's such a dynamite intro to their work. The flow from start to finish, it kind of has this vice grip on you and doesn't let go and just kind of beats you around and really in that kind of punky spirit 
Um, I would say my two to three tracks that really illustrate the crystal clear moment. Uh, the first one is Pass You By. That phenomenal chorus that comes in. And I think there's something underrated about uh, their bridges, their middle eights. And within that song, uh, the bridge has a completely different tone from the rest of the song, which is what bridges do. But this one is so radically out there. So I really appreciate that. And then behind your back, that percussion work is extraordinary. And I feel as though as I, you know, did my homework and really, really went back to connect to their music, we have to give props to the production work on every instrument. And you alluded to this earlier that it doesn't or didn't seem that one person was kind of outclassing or outshining anybody else. So within that mixing sound and the mastering of their work, it seemed like all of the units, all the players on the field were participating in, in a way that allowed each of their skills to shine through. Does that make sense? It's, it makes perfect sense. And it's a, it's a great comment because as much as I love this band, one of my complaints later on with some of their other albums, when they maybe get a little overproduced is boy, sometimes I'm like, where's the bass? It is just happy head and world without end in particular. There's some really great bass parts. And then beyond that, especially on an album like sound, I'm just like, wow, it's just like the bass is almost so it's almost erased. It's almost muted and you just don't have that strong rhythm section. So I think, yeah, I think your comment is spot on. The, um, and behind your back, as I mentioned, that work, um, by Keith, the, there is, uh, when Paul Marsling's jumped the rails and that the intensity of that chorus just builds and builds and builds. And I don't remember or recall seeing them perform that live, but I can go back in my head and go, okay, if they had performed that live, I can just imagine people just kind of kind of jumping off the rails there and really having a good time. Yeah, a Happy Head, when I listen to that album, it takes me to industrial London or from Wolverhampton, mm -hmm. right? And you can just see some tiny club where they're just up there banging out these Happy Head songs and people are just jumping around and losing their minds for an hour and a half, just getting yes. sweaty and just so happy. And just, it's because it's just infectious. All those songs, there's not a dud on there. No. And just a quick, quick uh, side note story. So as you know, I incorporated quite a bit of music into my classroom and um, I thought it was time, like eight, nine years ago, I was like, all right, it's time for my students to get to know the My Lemon Drops. And so I used to play Other Side of You, and we'd sing it down at Robert's, you know, at the local market. And it took them a while to get into that post-punk spirit, right? But I remember there was one event that we had. It was 7.30 in the morning, and we were singing it inside the store. And one of my students just lost, lost his mind. <laughs> And he started air guitaring and just jumping around. I'm like, yes, go with that. Go with it. So it caught the spirit of my little fifth graders. 
Yeah, where all the shoppers are Roberts. Like, what is this crap? <laughs> something by the Beatles. <laughs> no way. <laughs> um, all right, let's, let's go to our, our our next album. You want to take this one away? World Without End. Yeah, I um, I listened to this album, and it's interesting because as my first intro into the Mighty Lemon Drops, I'm like, wow. I mean. Laughter is my unequivocal favorite, but I'm like, oh, before I re-listen to it, I'm like, wow, I really love World Without End, too. And I listen to it, I'm like, maybe not so much. You know, I, I know you, you you texted me a ranking of your, your Lemon Drops albums, and you had it fourth. And at first, I was like, yeah, that's way too low. Um, but then I listened to it again, I'm like, I think William's on to something here. And I know we're going to talk about two or three songs, and I'm, I'm saying to myself as I listen to it, I'm like, don't just talk about the hits you know but i listen to it and i'm like wow the songs i really want to talk about are the the quote-unquote popular songs at least ones i heard on alternative radio or maybe saw a video on 120 minutes or something um back in the day so yeah um maybe there's some deep tracks you want to talk about but to me it was it was inside out in particular and I know I'm biased. That was really my first intro hearing that. And from the first time I heard it, I loved it. And listening to it again, I'm just like, it's just the timelessness about that song. Um, the intro guitar is just absolutely infectious. It grabs you right away. Drums kick on in. You know, it's the first song on this album. And it's just like, I hear that. And it's like, wow. Okay, after Happy Head. I think they got a surge of confidence and to me, Paul Marsh just sounds like, Hey, we're, we're a legitimate rock band. Now I'm, I'm a, I am a good singer and I'm going to kill this intro song. And, um, again, you talk about the bridges on it. Um, little, I felt like they expand a little bit, a little tiny bit of distortion on there. Um, and yeah, boy, the bridge, I mean, the chorus is, completely irresistible so yeah inside out you can't go on inside out is a song you know i have all these you know apple playlists i'll play at dinner that song comes on it's a rare song where like my wife and daughter who know practically nothing about lemon drops they're like oh what's this song this is a great song just sort of that universal appeal so there's that um love in everything you do i've always loved that song um i really thought paul marsh really shines on their on their slower songs I think he's a good singer regardless, but when you really strip down the sound, I almost feel like he, he steps up his game a little bit and just the flow of in everything you do. Um, and man, I just love the intro and the outro with that just very simple, beautiful guitar and the drumming in particular as it fades out is just incredible work, I think. And then to me, the, Upon re-listening to that album, The Standout, which is a song I've, I've always liked but never thought it was in the Inside Out category, but Fall Down Like the Rain, um, just listening to that, I'm like, wow, this is a more complicated lyrical structure for them. The the chorus in particular has sort of this, these great three-part rhymes um, that really stood out to me. I'm like, okay, I felt like they took a step lyrically with, with the song while also just a completely catchy... Um, intro guitar riff and the way that song and how listening to that and then listening to laughter didn't take this band to the next level of popularity is just blows me away because this is 
without a doubt, one of my top 10 favorite albums of all time. And in, in doing a little homework for this, I had read about how after their first two albums, they felt like, and I think someone interviewed Dave Newton about this, but they, they felt like they were sort of lumped in with all these quote unquote gloom and doom British bands. And they really wanted to lighten up their sound a little bit. And those, so they went for a more obviously lighter, poppier touch on when they were recording laughter. And I'm, I'm all for it. I mean, to me, this album is from start to finish. This is one of the all time great catchiest album. And yeah, I'm looking at my notes here. I have like seven of the songs written down, <laughs> but, um, I have to start with the one that grabs me every time when I play this album and I hear the opening notes of at midnight, every single time I am immediately entranced. Just the, the kind of loud opening guitar sound right into that powerhouse drums and then back to a more sort of catchy, jangly guitar. And again, that just leads right to these lyrics and the soaring chorus of that song. Irresistible. I mean, it's one of the all-time great album openers. And one I love playing for people who have never heard of the Mighty Lemon Drops, or maybe it's, you know, alternative music isn't their thing. And every time they're like, what's this? Who's this? This is incredible. Like, you like rock music, you like pop music, you like, I mean, you like that song. And, um, so yeah, every single time I hear that. Um, all right, I'm going to keep it to three, as hard as it is. Um, one in a million. The incredible successor to In Everything You Do. Um, again, just... Paul Marsh on these slow songs, slower songs, just shines. Um, and again, the way that song builds from kind of a, a, a slower acoustic guitar to powerhouse electric guitar and, and kind of transcend just builds and builds and builds and builds into this faster song towards the end, but still just beautiful haunting in, in the vocals and just just amazing and then as you know i think i've commented to you before that laughter not including rumble train which i think is only on the cd but throughout rumble train laughter has the best closing tracks of like any album i can think of and as much as i love beautiful shame i had to talk about again upon re-listening what is the one that really jumped out of me second time around that guitar riff at the start of that song, I mean, talk about when I listened to it, I had to go back and listen to it again, at least the opening part. And um, as you well know, my lovely wife, Tracy, I've been married to her for, for 18 years. When we first started dating, 2001. One thing I love about her, she's very into music, but she's very into pop music. Janet Jackson. Madonna, I, that is her jam. And I love that stuff too, but I'm like, all right, can I play a few albums for you? And, and some of them were very hit or miss. And I remember we listened to Laughter one time when we were in New York City traveling together. And second time around came on, she's just like, 
what this is fantastic like how do i not know about this i'm thinking to myself like how does the world not know about this how do people not know about laughter um and i mean she loved the whole thing and she thinks it's a great album just like i do and i've even got my daughter into it and uh but boy on the re-listening second time around that intro guitar and that chorus and the music right after the chorus and the way that I just, I love everything about it, but that was the one I love the one. But I'm like, okay, that one really stood out to me. on re-listening. So now, now you have the, you have the difficult task of, of picking two or three songs off this masterpiece. Yeah, no, this was, this was hard. This is really hard. Uh, this album has been traveling with me for a long, long time. This was the moment that I saw them live at the Warfield with the Ocean Blue and John Wesley Harding. I will never forget it. Where was my invite? <laughs> you were listening to Janet Jackson. That <laughs> probably was. Redemation. Hard to deny. <laughs> I, you know, it would be easy for me to say they opened up with At Midnight, and I believe they did. Someone can fact check me on that, I'm sure. But that is, yeah, that's, um, that is one of the tracks. Like you said, the intro is perfect. The entire song makes a loud statement. The production work is, the quality on that is fantastic. And it just puts you into that immersive aural experience with them that you know you're going to be going on a ride for this, you know, 10 tracks, if you will. So, yeah, definitely at midnight. But I also want to give you some context, too. I forgot to tell you. That year was phenomenally impressive when it came to albums. Nine Inch Nails, um, Pretty Hate Machine, Peter Murphy, Deep. And then, of course, New Order Technique. Fucking 89 so this, here? Yeah. 89, yeah. So this album sits in beautifully with the rest of those um, opuses, if you will. Hmm. All right. I, this, you know, this second track for me kind of bounced back and forth. It was a song that I loved and loved and loved. And then for some reason, I found other tracks that I love just as much. And then I came back to this one and it's all that I can do. Mm. Oh, that song. Oh, so close to choosing that one, but I <laughs> got me, but yeah, you get inside that, the, the skin of that chorus and, and the horns, if you will. <laughs> that just, that drums with the, uh, the drums. Love it. All the elements of their of their depth skill work really shines through on that song, and I love the tempo. Absolutely love the tempo. All right, now if you were to ask me what is my all time favorite My Lemon Drop song, it's actually on this album, and it is a song that I can tell you when I used to cut school and go off into the city and had the tape playing CD, I'd just be, I would repeat, 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 and I still do it to this day. And that is beautiful shame. That's, that is my number one MLD song. 
Um, it's my number one song on the album. And, you know, some songs, you know, when, when the lead vocalist gets repetitive and it kind of grates, never, never on this track. Um, it, it is like what I call the PPP, the pure pop perfection. Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to listen to it just for a little bit here. That bass part. This is crystal clear. <laughs> and then Yeah, this album is such an embarrassment of riches. It's like how can I not choose Beautiful Shame? I had a sneaking feeling you were gonna talk about it though, so I'm like, <laughs> okay. I'm gonna take a chance here, but I think I think you can talk about it. And of course, I have to tell a quick William story here. William came to visit me at college, and I was able to get him a DJing gig. And of course, he dropped all my CDs and broke them later. But that's a different story. But William was good, and for the most part, played. It was you know it was kind of an '80s themed dance, and played pretty mainstream stuff, and built out a good dance floor. People were fired up. And at the time, I was I was dating this girl, and um, I had gotten her into the Mighty Lemon Drops and, and laughter, and particular beautiful shame. And I remember middle of this packed dance floor, playing all these eighty songs that people knew and loved. He throws on Beautiful Shame. No one knew the song other than me and my girlfriend, and we loved it. We had a moment, but not one person left the dance floor. I think more people may have come out. It fit in so beautifully with all the other songs he was playing that everybody knew and everyone just I could tell was kind of looking around like I'm like I don't know what this is but it's phenomenal and I'm staying on the dance floor and I think some more people may have joined and I just remember that moment so clearly just like man how is this song not bigger how is this band not bigger so good so good and and I remember thank yeah thank you for taking me on that stroll to memory lane there <laughs> And then I, I, wasn't that like a couple songs later? I threw on Meat Beat Manifesto, and everyone just <laughs> cleared. Yeah, exactly. You, you got you got a little greedy there. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that that laughter experience. When I look in the rearview mirror, when it comes to seminal moments in my musical life, yeah, this album stands. It's always there, right there. Um, okay. So now let's go to 1991 and I'll give you a little bit of context here. That was when this little band called Nirvana breakthrough, broke through with Nevermind. The Pixies, one of my favorite albums by them, Trompe Le Monde. Um, so those were the kind of two big albums I hear. Jane's Addiction, I believe Ritual De La Habitual came out. And then we get sound, which a radical departure, and that's kind of the title of 
the album. So I want to hear your your uh, two to three picks here from this album. Yeah, I had a hard time <laughs> with two or three songs. I find this album very disappointing. I know it's called Sound, Say Goodbye to Your Standards, and I felt like they or said goodbye to their songwriting standards on this one or, or got a little too cute. I feel like this is the quintessential album that so many artists come out with where they're like, we have a couple good songs, but we can't quite get over the hump and have a bunch of great songs. And especially coming off Laughter, it's so disappointing to me because I feel like if Laughter is that good, man, they must have had some other other songs that didn't make Laughter that maybe could have been on sound. But I feel like sound, they said, now we're, we're starting from scratch. We're doing something new. We're working a new producer, new sound, new everything. And it just falls flat to me. Um, so I, I do have three songs, but this was the one I had the hardest time finding them. I really feel like uh, they had the, the two standout tracks back to back. Too High almost feels to me like it, it could have been on, on Laughter. Um, the way that song starts, it is a very infectious opening song. Um, feel like a little more, little more aggressive tone to it. A um, little, little louder. I'm not going to say grungier. I know, you know we're talking about the birth of grunge here, but um, a little bit more of an aggressive opening, opening riff. And to me, I know I talked about Fall Down Like the Rain before and how I felt like that was uh, a more challenging chorus and they had the sort of the triple rhyme scheme there, but, um, the chorus of too high, I still to this day don't know what he says. It's so fast, but, um, just that whole series of words sounds great together into the, you know, we're too high part and then the guitar riffs throughout the whole thing. So that is the absolute standout to me on this album. I do like the way it flows right into unkind. Uh, which to me is the other real standout song from this album. And I knew that song well, but re-listening to it, immediately I'm like, wow, the drums on this song really caught my attention. I, and again, I'm just like, wow, really, really excellent work um, on the drums there. And then I'm like, okay. I think that's an album a lot of times I listen to the first two songs and maybe kind of blitz through the rest of it because there wasn't a standout track. But definitely upon re-listening to it, the song You Don't Appreciate Anything really, really jumped out at me. I'm like, wow, this is an underrated little gem here towards the end. Um, and in particular, the rhythm section I found, it's the bass and drums working together on that. Um, and in particular, the, the bass work on that, that song, I kind of felt like the bass had sort of been lost on this album. I'm like, oh, there it is. Okay, it's back. Maybe it doesn't stand out as much on, on some of their other, other tracks. Um, but it's there and it, it really works beautifully with the drums on that song. And I really think on that album, along with Too High, that's, that's one of, uh, Paul Marsh's stronger moments as well. I think the, the vocals on that song to me are very, uh, very powerful and, and stand out amongst the songs in that album. Thank you for sharing. Um, I think I'm always going to look back at this album very fondly because it was a time in my life where I was really struggling to, just struggling in high school, and I was getting in kind of that darker experience with music and 
finding new friendships outside of our high school experience. Um, and I remember seeing them down in San Jose for, I believe, for this tour. And I remember these songs really popped, more so than the album. Um, so I do have a, an attachment, uh, not as strong as the other albums. Um, but I think in echoing your sentiments, the first track with Too High, it's a great way to, to launch into an album, which they do so well, right? It's, um, you get the chimes, you get the bells, you get that quintessential Mighty Lemon Drop sound. The production level on this, on this album, it definitely has that kind of 60s, uh, power pop. So you do have to go over to your equalizer, you know, and put up that bass a little bit more. But uh, I do appreciate that they kind of um, stepped aside a little bit and tried something. I think that's important in the learning curve and that experience. And, uh, you know, you're going to have some hits and misses. Uh, the other track that I absolutely adore was Colorful Loving Me. And that's a song um, that I didn't fully appreciate until a couple of years ago. And Paul Marsh's vocals, again, really ring through. And um, I just love the instrumentation. I love particularly the drum work on that. And um, I love the back end, the outro to it. And then we're going to talk about Always, uh, track number five, kind of just this... Um, it's, you know, you know, people say they always talk about first great tracks or closing tracks or what's a great number two track. I think this is a great middle album track. Um, kind of has elements of all of their, their work a little bit. So, um, yeah, again, I know it may not be everyone's favorite My Lum Drops album, but again, go over to that equalizer, push up the bass a little bit more and you can start really appreciating their um their their willingness to try something different and uh I, yeah so yeah that that's kind of how i feel about those songs with their too high example and then you get this kind of this We've arrived again. And the vocal work, I'm glad you mentioned that, just the, the trickery of that, kind of almost rapish, if you will. I thought that was a nice little challenge for him to do that. All right, we're going to wrap this up with Ricochet, 1992. Let me give you some albums here. Some people say this is like one of the greatest years for album releases. All right. We have Dr. Dre, Chronic, Ride, Going Blank Again, The Cure, Wish, Beastie Boys, my favorite album, Check Your Head. Then we get Ricochet. Let's hear your thoughts. Well, this is, this is an album that I knew somewhat but after the disappointment of, of sound i wasn't super eager to listen to ricochet at least in the 90s but i did a few times but i'll never forget see when you get a text from william 
that says, you need to go back and listen to this album. It's really good. You pay attention because that is a solid goal of recommendation right there. But I can distinctly remember getting a text from you maybe two years ago. And like, you know what's a great album? Ricochet. And I was like, oh man, I haven't heard that in a while. Popped it on, I'm like, oh yeah, there's some good stuff on there. I felt like they, they learned their lessons from sound and they still had some of that inspiration from, from sound, kind of the, the, the differences, taking some chances, but reined it in a little bit and really kind of got back to their, their roots of just super catchy songwriting. So um, other than laughter, this is the one I have the hardest time trying to pin down some songs because Again, listening to it a couple times this week, I'm like, Phew, this is good stuff. You can really talk about just about any track on this album. But again, I'll start. I feel like Lemon Drops are, remind me a little bit of Depeche Mode and that just about every album, they just grab you right away with the first song. Like Depeche Mode, I think, is, even though a lot of their albums are inconsistent, especially in their later years, boom, right from the get that first song, you know, Never Let Me Down Again, or or um, rolled in my eyes or something. They're going to they're gonna catch you, and then you can decide if you want to stay or not, but nothing right off the bat. <laughs> yeah. So good. I heard that. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is good. And uh, what immediately caught me about Ricochet, and especially right from the get-go of that first song, is, wow, not only does Paul Marsh sound refreshed and maybe a little more comfortable with the material, um, but, man, the backing vocals... And, um, yeah, I, I, I was just really, really impressed with that. Speaking of backing vocals, the track, I feel like every, every one of these albums I listened to, I was really trying to listen to maybe a song I didn't know as well that really popped for me or really stood out. And for me on this album, that was Falling Deep. Yes. And what I loved about that, I'm like, okay. I felt like over... Album to album, sort of their backing vocals have gotten better. And I don't know who it is. Maybe you know this. But the female backing vocals on that track are phenomenal. So that would be, that would be Susie Hood from the Katie Dits. And I think they, they were friends or they had toured together or something like that. Um, but yeah, she, beautiful, beautiful vocals there. Yeah. And I'm just like, wow. They should have done this more often. That is a really great pairing of, of voices um, and harmonies that just really stood out to me. I'm like, wow, I, that is a real standout song for me. And then uh, the last one I'm going to go with is Hallowed Ground. Oh, Getting strong towards the end of that. Uh, but again, in some of those middle albums, um, you know, on sound and, and even... As much as I love laughter, I, I really feel like, yeah, maybe you do need to trump the bass a little bit. The bass isn't as prominent. And then I listen to Hallowed Ground, I'm like, okay, there's the old Lemon Drops bass. Like, boom, kind of right from the beginning, just sort of just sort of grabs you and uh, just leads into uh, a really great track, I think. So, I mean, I'm looking at my notes here. I have like eight songs written down. We're off the bat. I'm like, those are the three I want to talk about. But you go so many directions with this album. It really felt like a, a nice return to form. For them, at least in my opinion. It's almost something you hear on Happy Head. Mm -hmm. Exactly, yeah. Here it comes. 
Welcome to return. Kind of very doors-ish. Big cage. If that's going to be your last song on your last album, that is a hell of a way to go. And that outro is fantastic. I'm glad, I'm glad you picked that one. Thank you. Um, that, that, so this album for me, it, it is, um, it is kind of like if you go, we t I think we've talked about this with Erasure. Like, it's kind of like the chorus album. I just think it's underappreciated, but when people listen to it, they can go, oh, yeah, got it. Um, and it kind of fell, got lost in the shuffle of all those albums that I mentioned. But um, I think for me, this album speaks a couple things. One, I mean, the, the title, Ricochet, right? Coming back, Rebound. I think that's a perfect title. Um, I think they kind of caught all their previous work in that big net of theirs, all that experience. I thought the production work on this album is fantastic. Uh, you can really hear el every bits and pieces of the, the instruments um, being played. And Paul Marsh's vocals, again, really uh, punch through. So for me, you got to start with nothing. I mean, again, it's one of those songs I will hit repeat. I love that song so much. And, you know, we haven't even talked about the romantic quality of his voice and what that does emotionally for me. It's, um, it really fills me up with a lot of joy. And, uh, yeah, and I feel like that song really illustrates that. The next song for me would be Sense. That's track number three. Um, On my notes here, I was, I was close, close to picking that one. Lovely. It is so lovely. Kind of get the echoey reaper vocal here. And that's almost like a cousin, a little bit to maybe in everything you do, right? Mm -hmm. So, and then the la 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 parts towards the end, all good. And then uh, my favorite track on this album is actually from uh, from the sky. I think that's some of Paul's best vocal work um, from start to finish. That song just man just muscles up, so melodic, so beautiful. So those are my three tracks, Nothing Sense, From the Sky. And yeah, it's a, it's a hell of an album. Hopefully people who are listening to this go back and check out Ricochet. And I want to close it out with this. If you, if you can find it. So this is the album. And then they released um, 10 extra tracks, some live tracks here. And then they have some tracks on here. Um, bonus tracks that I never made it on the the original release, and that was Ricochet and Guiding Light. You have to check these out. It's it's one of those. How the hell was were these songs not put on here? Amazing, amazing stuff. But then they have um, some live stuff. Into the Heart of Love, Nothing, Happy Head, Closer to You, and then they close it out with Inside Out. So yeah. Um, 
if you can find this, this is a really good pickup. Yeah, I, you know, one thing when I was listening to Ricochet just this week, I don't know if you had the, the same feeling, but I'm like, man, this is the right album at the wrong time. You know, yeah. everyone's listening to Nevermind and 10 and I don't know, uh, Blood Sugar Sex Magic right now. And this album comes out in 1992 that had it been released in, say, like 1988, I think could have been just big for them. I mean, I'm just like, man, this is so good, but maybe just the right album at the wrong time. Well, and let's, let's give them credit, too, for putting out so much music within a span of five years. Mm-hmm. Six years, right? And um, it, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty amazing what they accomplished. And uh, just one of those bands that very influential, very inspiring, but just always have always sat on this, just underneath the surface of popularity when it comes to alternative post-punk music. Well, I think it's so interesting because in doing some research for this week and just reading a ton of stuff, it's just like, all of these comparisons to Echo and the Bunnymen. I mean, in particular, many, many bands, but Mighty Lemon Drops, they're just, they're trying to sound like Will Sargent and Ian McCulloch. And, and, you know, and I, and I listen to them. I'm just like, I don't know. I sort of get the general impression that, that the, the press or the, the music world sort of thought they were this, this less, lesser version of, of Echo and the Bunnymen or some of these other bands. And I'm just like, I don't get it. I mean, to me, Echo and the Bunnymen, which is a band I love as well, but to me, that is, you know, it's Ian's vocals and it's Will Sargent's very distinctive guitar sort of dominating every song. Um, and I think that's a formula that works very well, but there, I don't know about you, but when we're listening to these albums, there weren't a lot of times where I'm listening to them thinking like, oh, that sounds like Echo and the Bunnymen. Right, right. I mean, maybe a few times here and there, but I think you could say they sounded like a lot of other bands too. I just, I never quite, like got that comparison and how maybe Echo the Bunnymen again not a huge huge band but maybe broke through a little bit more um, than than the Mighty Lemon Drops but um, yeah it was thank you for inviting me to do this it was great to go back and, and listen to all these these albums again and and find the nuggets and really try to uh, pinpoint some songs that really distinguish them so uh, thank you for for having me that was it was a blast. You're absolutely welcome, and I'm going to put you on the spot here. Yeah, I want to know what is William's all- specialty. <laughs> what is your all-time favorite My Lemon Drops tune? Ooh, ambush! <laughs> all-time favorite. Are you trying to kill me right now? Um, <laughs> I think it's in everything you do. Uh, I'm just going to go with my gut instinct there. There's like seven songs off laughter. I want to say, um, boy, at midnight, mm-hmm. I think I'll stick with in everything you do. Um, that song is just so pretty and melodic. I can, a, a quick story and, and then, and then we can wrap up. But again, in, in, you know, when, when I, I first met my wife and, and I introduced her to some some music, which was very hit or miss. I love that, that she loved laughter. And I'm like, well, if you love that album, let me just play you a few other their songs. And I remember playing in everything you do. And she liked it so much. I mean, we seriously considered that being like our wedding song. Oh, wow. And, um, 
we didn't go that direction, but thank you because I would have jumped in and ruined the whole moment. <laughs> oh, I'm uh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, you didn't you didn't have a few drinks at my wedding or anything. Um, <laughs> but uh, I was just thinking, you know, like I'm sure somebody's used that as their wedding song, you know, or their, or their first dance or something like that. And how how great would that be? Just the song you're filling up a a ballroom or wherever you are, a hotel, you know, a, a conference or wherever you are. And that song just coming on, just filling up the room and just sort of building to that beautiful chorus that a lot of people don't really know. And, um, that's just always stuck with me. It's, it's a song that if people have never heard it instantly are just like, wow, this song is beautiful. And it, it's just, I just, you and I talked about that. For us, like the Lemon Drops, it's a lot about their sound and not so much their lyrics. That's one where I think the lyrics just not only flow beautifully within the song, but have a really powerful message about like, hey, I'm, I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to support you through through thick and thin. That, that really gave us, um, you know, some some strong consider, sir, consideration, you know, for the record. We went with a, a Sade song, No Ordinary Love, which was really kind of perfect for our situation and, and for where we got married, kind of the vibe of the place that worked well. I can't deny that, but it was, it was, it was on the short list. Nice. That's, yeah. a, that's a huge compliment to the entire band. Dave on gear. I hope we can do this again for another tribute to another band that you and I have always appreciated over the, over the years. Anytime brother. I had, I had a blast. It was great. Great seeing you. I love that, that you do all this and uh, yeah, I'm, I'd love to join you anytime. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another surprise event. Again, my name is W, a.k.a. William, host of the High Art on the Edge page. Just to give you some more information about upcoming events, we'll be doing tribute for OMD as they have a brand-new album coming out. Um, we have the, uh, the Walkman, the National, and a few more. So stay tuned for more details. Take care. Ciao. Well, that was just an amazing, amazing examination of the Mighty Lemon Drops music. I hope you enjoyed that special event. By the way, speaking of a Mighty Lemon Drop, we have a special surprise guest here. This is David Newton from the Mighty Lemon Drops. David, how are you? That's me. It is indeed. I'm doing all right. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, being a special guest on this event. Uh, what, what's new with you? What's new? There's nothing that exciting and new, really. It's just uh, business as usual. Living here in Burbank, California. This is my 20, uh, 28th and a bit coming up to 29th year. It will be in January. As a Los, well, Los Angeles, but Burbank for I was 28 years in, uh, in July. Uh, so uh, it's bit yeah, no, nothing super exciting today. Bit of work to do in a bit, and uh, but yeah, just getting into the morning. So if you wouldn't um, mind sharing with us, what? How did you end up in Los Angeles? Uh, because in 1987, I met uh, a girl who would become my wife a couple of years later in 1989, who was originally from Los Angeles. And uh, she just was going to school in London, 
Uh, we started dating. She moved to Wolverhampton with me in 1988. And then in 1990, we moved to London together and lived there through the latter days of the Mighty Lemon Drops. And Lemon Drops ended at the end of 92, 93. Stayed in London for another couple of years and decided to move back to Los Angeles. Well, for, to Los Angeles for me in 1995. And so been for, ever since. So for those that have never been to Wolverhampton, can you kind of describe that environment and how it might differ from Los Angeles? <laughs> uh, you can't really compare Wolverhampton to Los Angeles at all. Um, Wolverhampton, it's, uh, it's what, 250,000 people. It's, it was a town when I was growing up. It's now, it was uh, 10, 15 years ago, it's now a city, city of Wolverhampton. It's a predominantly working class town, you know. Uh, it was a, you know, a, a nice place to grow up, really. I had a lot of good friends, you know. Uh, I, my family wasn't, you know, weren't super wealthy or anything, but it was a nice working class environment. I went to a good school, good friends, you know, uh, you know, great place, great good time to be into music and everything. I was growing up and all that, so yeah, but it's just it's like your typical blue collar, as you call it here, working class environment, really. I owe a great deal uh, of gratitude to my older brother, Todd who really exposed me to quite a bit of music. I never became a musician. Right. I want to know from you, uh, when did that itch to be a guitarist or some form of musicianship um, take place, take hold in your life? Who inspired that? I think it was after, because I'd always, there was always like, there was music around our house really. Like my, my dad was Welsh, so, and he was into a lot of like Welsh, like, uh, like Welsh male voice choirs and stuff like that. And uh, Tom Jones was big in our house, being from Wales as well. And um, I just started buying records when I was a kid. The first record I ever bought was in the end of 1972, 1973, with uh, money I'd got given for Christmas. I bought a, a T-Rex single, Solid Gold Easy Action, Mark Boland and T-Rex. And that was the gateway. And since then, I just started buying uh, – I, I would buy – a 45 every week when it was basically when the records would fall, fall out of the top 40, top 50, they would go in the X chart box and they'd be half price. They'd be like 25p instead of like 45 or 50p. And, uh, and I started, you know, I can't remember what, how much pocket money I was getting, probably 50p. So 20 pence of that each week would be spent on, I would I'd buy on average one pop single a week. And it was a great time to be in the UK because it was, a mixture of everything from like, I mean, my favourite stuff was like the kind of the glam glitter thing, like T-Rex, Slade, Sweet, Bowie, all that stuff. And uh, and there was a lot of other stuff too, like Northern Soul was big a few years later, which I was really into. And uh, I, I kind of flirted a little with progressive rock. Like I think I, think I actually, you know, sad to admit that I, I even own Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd. I wouldn't really admit to nowadays. And, uh, but then, and then, of course, in 1976, it was, uh, I started hearing about punk rock 
and I would have been about 12 years old, and that just was changed my life. Because I'd, I'd been a guitar knocking around the house, and I couldn't really emulate what, you know, uh, David Bowie's, what Mick Ronson was playing in David Bowie's band or whatever. But then when punk came around, it was like it was I could almost kind of play some of those songs, and I think that's what inspired me to to play guitar as well. Was punk? I mean, I know it's a cliche for people to say that, but I mean, it really was, you know. I mean, and punk, punk was a lot different in the UK to what it was in the US. US, it was, you know, it was it wasn't as uh, accessible as it was in the UK because a lot of the bands. In the UK, like the Clash and the Pistols and Buzzcocks, all had major record deals, and their records would get in the charts, and they're even on top of the pops and stuff. So that was so, me into it. I believe the first time I saw the Mighty Lemon Drops was San Francisco, the Warfield. I believe yeah. John Wesley Harding was part of that billing, and the Ocean Blue. Yep. So. I clearly remember that experience as being kind of a game changer for me. Can you share a story or two about a concert uh, that kind of opened your eyes as a concert goer? Um, I mean, a lot did, really. It was, again, you know, it's not, I'm not saying it's a cliche to say the punk thing, but it was seeing a lot of those bands. The first band, the first gig I ever went to, I was 12 years old, was a band called yeah. Bebop Deluxe, which was Bill Nelson, supported by the Steve Gibbons band. Then the second gig after that was actually The Clash at the uh, Victoria Park in London. It was the big, it, it, it's on, if you look on the internet, you can find lots about it. It was a big CND campaign for Nuclear Disarmament Festival in April 1978. And we had a teacher at school who was politically involved in a lot of like things like CND campaign for nuclear disarmament and all that, and rock against racism and stuff like that. And he basically was chaperoned five of us to London as part of a coach. We had to get permission letter from our parents. I was 14 at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was an amazing eye-opener. And I saw The Clash twice that year. I saw them again in December with The Slits and The Innocents at Wolverhampton Civic Hall which was uh, where I grew up, Wolverhampton. So I'd say those two gigs really were like the real kind of, you know, that was just had a big impact So in many ways. Take me, if you take me to those moments of that show with The Clash. I mean, I've, we've seen tons of footage of it, but what was it really like to experience that visceral I mean, it was a world because there was, we were five 13, 14 year old kids walking around London on our own. And the teacher was like, you know, he's like, you know what? You can do what you want, but you better be back here at five o'clock or you're in effing trouble. You know, he like spoke our language as well. So, I mean, I, I, I can't say that there was anything. It was just like the whole day was just like this, like a whirlwind. I don't know, these metaphors too much, but. It really was, you know, yeah. and we, you know, we, we, there's photographs of it now. And I actually took photos too. And I can't, when I look now, because they expected five or 10,000 people, and I think 50 or 60,000 turned up in the end. 
And we were, near, we were near the front. We were like, I mean, you should see the photos that I have. I mean, they've been, of course, I put them on the internet like 20 years ago without watermarking them, and they've been nicked and used everywhere now. And they're, they're mine. They're, there's a lot of them. Photos, lot of, I've seen them in books with no credit, you know, which is kind of funny, really. Oh, wow. But, um, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, so, I mean, it was, you know, when you're 13, 14, I can't really remember what my mind was. You know, all I was yeah. interested in was music and uh, girls and whatever a typical 14-year-old's interested in. So I wasn't really in touch with my inner psyche to have any, you know, sure. I can't really, uh, I have no idea. So that's all I can do. Do you, go, do you go to concerts in Los Angeles? Do I? Yeah, yeah. I do, yeah. I don't go out as much as I used to. Well, I moved here in 95 and I was still in going out three, four nights a week mode that in those days. And uh, I still do, though. I mean, I still, I mean, up until about 10 years ago, I was still seeing about one or two shows a week. No, it's down to about one every couple of weeks. I don't really go to, like, because I, I still work with the closest thing I have to resembling a day job is um, I have a recording studio, which I initially built for myself when I moved here. And I still work with a lot of uh, like you know, all all types of bands really, but a lot of you know, most of them are younger <laughs> younger than me, of course. Not all of them, but a lot of them. <laughs> are. So I, I, you know, I say about half of the shows that I go to uh, nowadays are things that I've been involved in. I kind of support if it's a record that I've done with an artist or a band, mm -hmm. I'll go and see that. That actually, the last show that I saw was about actually there were two different bands playing with people two different people that i'd worked with it was uh the actually the main band was an old la punk band um it's called the weirdos who the, the the guitar player was also in a band called down by law that i'd worked with in my studio and the opening band was a band called black adidas who i recently they're a newer band and i finished i've done two records with them now so, I mean, that gives you an example of the kind of thing that I go to. Uh, I don't know what else is coming up on the agenda. Um, uh, I'm, actually, I'm actually going to see that on Sunday. I'm going to see a little low-key showcasing of that band, Warpaint. They're playing. Oh, okay. So I'm going to go. And, I'm going to pop by that because it's a, it's a, it's a kind of an afternoon showcasing, which is totally more my my speed nowadays rather than staying out all night. I like to go to these things that are kind of daytime afternoon. Kind of shows. I think you have a big festival coming up uh, with, I think, OMD's playing Echo and the Bunnymen. Uh, yeah. There's so many of those I get. I get. I did go to one earlier this year. I went to the um, Cruel World Festival. Which yeah, was, uh, uh, it was good. I, who did I say? I caught... Um, who did I say? When I got in there... I caught the end of Echo and the Bunny Men. Uh, I saw Lemon Rockets, who we Lemon Drops toured with, yeah. and that they that was the they were great. Yeah. I mean, they they I like them. They're not my favourite band or anything, but I have a, a soft spot for them because we toured with them and got to know them. But they they were the best band that day. You know, uh, unfortunately, it got it while. Um, just before, well, did Susie come on or was Susie about to come on? I can't remember. But uh, yeah. I, thought it was, I think it was Dear and Iggy. 
But what they did the following, because it started raining, so they actually closed the festival off and they actually reopened it the following day and I saw Iggy, Susie and uh, so, but it, that, that was actually the last gig that I kind of saw where I saw a lot of older bands, more established bands. I uh, heard Susie was fantastic. and um, It was yeah. great, yeah, it was really good. Yeah. yeah. So tell us... Um, Tell us a mighty lemon drop story or just a story that you want to share with the audience, uh, whether it be on tour, recording an album, um, anything related to your life as a musician. Uh, you give me some points. I mean, I don't know where to start. Well, I'm sorry. I'm like, is there, a, I'm, I know you've done so much touring in your life, though. So I, you know, like, was there a city that, you know, you had this phenomenal experience or was there like a happy accident or, you know, you're on stage and something goes wrong on, you know, with the amps and anything. Well, that, that, that happens every other gig. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, there's just like lots of it really. I mean, each, you know, from like the, the first time we came to America was the most, Enlightening because we'd never. I'd been to New York once, uh, and to actually go around the United States, that was. I knew we were with the Chameleons, who were one of my. It was a band that I actually had been following for like five or six years before that. I'd bought their records, seen them live, been to shows, and all that. And that was. Uh, so that was that whole tour was a moment that. With, you know that that feeling of seeing all the different parts of America, seeing how big it was, the vastness, and <clears throat> traveling most of the day to get to a show and stuff—that was new, you know, because we you, know, you, could tour, you, you could tour the entire UK in, in a couple. Was of there weeks. a particular place that you found that there was kind of um, a stronger fan base? Like, for example, oh. Paul Simpson of the Wild Swans. It just turns out, I mean, he's got a really strong following around the world, but the Philippines and Manila yeah. and Cebu, he's got a huge following there. So was there a particular place for you that you found like, wow, there is a strong, vehement love for the Mighty Lemon Drops that you weren't expecting in this area of the world? Um, no, not really. I yeah. mean, there's a lot of different ones. You know, uh, obviously some places you have more of a following than, than others, but there's no particular place that stands out. It was, you know, I mean, we went like, we went to some, like, we went to Brazil, for instance. We went to Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro. And, uh, we didn't think that anybody would know our music there. And, uh, we were surprised that, that they did. You know, it was, it was not, I don't know why, we, how we ended up going there, but <laughs> it was, it was great. So, uh, not really. I mean, it's, uh, you know, uh, wherever we would, you know, play that, you know, we, we, it's, it's very rare that we'd go somewhere. The, the only place that's a little odd that I've been there a few times, with, with, actually with other bands as well, is sometimes Switzerland can be a little odd. It's like they, they treat you really well there and they, and not being, um, what's the word, uh, uh, they, they pay well, they treat you well, they give you an amazing rider and give you everything, but nobody comes to the shows. And like, I've, I've been there a couple of times with different bands as well. And each time there's been like 60 or 70 people there who like really love you and go crazy. 
But uh, and everybody's like, yeah, that's normal. That's just kind of the way. Unless yeah. you're like a huge, 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 huge band, I'm sure. But, uh, was, there, was there a particular venue that you really enjoyed playing at? Um, lots of them, yeah. Uh, I don't know really offhand, you know. Um, uh, nah, not really. Not, no one particular one. No. They're, they're all, you know, played in lots of, lots of different places. And, you know, there's a few that we played more than once, but especially in the UK. Like the town and country club was always good. The Astoria Theatre was always good in London. Uh, we played the Palace in Los Angeles. It's now called, I can't remember what it's called nowadays. Keeps changing its mind since different corporate companies keep buying it over the years. Uh, but we played the Palace several times. That was good. Um, yeah, I, I said that. Playing at Universal Amphitheatre with Love and Rockets, which... Uh, you know, at the time it was because that holds like five or six thousand people. That, that was pretty something. Another, actually, another big place we played was was we did a tour of the UK with the Mission, the Mission UK, and they were they were really really they were they were huge in the UK in the mid late eighties. Mm-hmm. And we played Wembley Arena in London with the Mission, which is like I don't know, ten or twelve thousand people. Um, but I don't really have. When you play places like that and you've been used to playing to like, you know, seven, eight hundred, a thousand, you know, two thousand people tops maybe. When you play a bigger place like that, it's not the same. It's, I, don't, I don't think so. I mean, if you're one of these, if you're you two, if you're Simple Minds or, you know, it's like those bands, their music was made to be heard in like, like you know, works better in those kind of venues than, you know. Uh, I remember reading an interview or hearing an interview with Jim Kerr from Simple Minds once and him saying that when The Jam became one of the biggest bands in the UK in the late 1970s, early 80s, he saw them in a huge like arena and he didn't think that the sound they made was appropriate and filled that arena like had the same energy as what he did when they played in a small club. But he said when he formed Simple Minds, he wanted to make a band that would make a sound that would fill that. Which, I mean, I kind of laughed, being younger, I think I laughed at that at the time. But I do totally understand that, and I do get that. And he did achieve that, so I'll give credit where credit's due. And he did that. Whereas, And I do kind of get that with the jam, because, I mean, they were much, I'm sure that the, the sound that they made would be much better in a smaller place than a, than a cavernous Echoing arena, you know. So what I think you, the what, dots were better in smaller venues too. So yeah, what would you tell um, up and coming musicians about touring? What would you recommend to them about you know keeping up your stamina, how to stay healthy, or what? What, what do you recommend? <laughs> what would you say? Uh, <laughs> you're asking the wrong person there because I did not. <laughs> <laughs> Did you enjoy uh, the touring? I'm not really the person to ask, you know, <laughs> on that. I can't yeah. give healthy tips or, or <laughs> what's the immediately best thing to do on being in the band because I, I probably did all the wrong things. So, <laughs> did, did you enjoy touring overall? Did you? I did really. I mean, uh, you reach a point where you kind of, you know, like in 1988 was we spent most of that year touring. We did like the UK, Europe. Uh, we did, uh, no, actually 1990 we spent a moment. We spent four months just in the US in 1990 on that tour. 
And but were were we? Did we look after ourselves? Did we go to the gym? Did we drink? No, no, we did none of that. We were just we were like in our twenties, so we were just you know it's just you just live for the day, you know, and it's boring. So what do you do? Five o'clock comes around, so you open a beer, you know. Before you know it, it's like they go. Oh, by the way, your, your stage time's eleven thirty. So come eleven thirty, you realise that you've drank like a bottle of wine, half a bottle of vodka, and sixteen beers. And it's like then, then the following day comes around and five o'clock comes around again and you're bored. So you do exactly the same thing. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but hey, you know, that's when you're younger, you can, you can do that kind of thing, I guess. We're going to wrap this up. Um, speaking hey, of David Newton. Well, we weren't exactly, you know, so yeah. So we never thought of, there was no, we weren't really that sensible. There was no strategy or nothing, you know. Yeah. We never had bad uh, meetings about or went to the gym or anything like that. At least I didn't, anyway. Actually, you know what? None of the others did, either. <laughs> to my knowledge. So, Unless I sneak out to the gym. The last time the Mighty Lemon Drops played was 2002? No, 2000. 2000. And yeah. where was that show? That was a one-off thing. That was not really a big thing at all. That was basically a friend of mine had been over visiting here, us in the States, and... He was a friend who I'd been in bands with even before Mighty Lemon Drops. And he just had the idea of, like, he said, you know, I could put together something in Wolverhampton in around Christmas time this year, December 2000. Do you think the band would be up for it? So we just basically, you know, it was early days of the internet even, mm -hmm. uh, for me at least anyway. And uh, we just called each other up and everybody agreed to do it. So we did one show at a... Uh, the upstairs room of a pub in Wolverhampton, which held about 400 people. And uh, we were like, yeah, let's see how it goes. And it actually sold out in like a couple of hours. And uh, so we did that, and it was it was a laugh, and it was fun, and uh, and that was it. That was That's the only time that we've done anything as a band since. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I remember some of your shows here in the Bay Area, San Francisco. You played it one step beyond in San Jose. Yeah, you played, played the a few, Yeah, played a few. Played one step beyond a few times. Yes, so I think the company owned owned a few, couple of different venues. Right, right. And it would be on. Uh, the road. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time. Thank I, you. I super appreciate anything uh, coming up for David Newton. Anything you want to share? Uh, not really. Uh, I mean, Anything related to the Mighty Angels you want to talk about? Uh, Lemon Drops had a box set out last year on Cherry Red Records, uh, five CDs, lots of little clips and stuff. Go check that out if you're a fan and you want to. All that's from 1985 till 1990. Uh, and there is my own band, David Newton and The Mighty Angels, T-H-E-E Mighty Angels, who put out uh, an album a couple of years ago called A Gateway to a Lifetime of Disappointment. Plug, plug, you can find that. You can stream it on the internet. Or I have a couple of physical copies left. I don't have many, but if anybody does want to, I think you can find that on... I get confused. Is it Bandcamp? Band um, I think you can buy it on there. I'm not sure. Or I think there's actually Discogs might have uh, one as well. Uh, other than that... Uh, I have a couple of things coming up in the studio, nothing that exciting to report about at this point. Uh, yeah, that's it. Life, life goes on, really. There well, you go. Thank you.
Yeah, thank you so much for your time and thank you for all this? the music. It's it's uh it's a big part of my life and many people's lives. So and uh, thank you. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thanks a lot, David. From the my lemon drops. Bye.